This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. What makes life meaningful? Some would say faith. Others might suggest family. Some would say good deeds or kindness, judgment and justice. Still others recommend passion. One thing they would probably all agree on is the vital importance of meaningfulness in human life. The human condition being what it is and what it always has been, philosophers and thinkers from earliest times have grappled with the meaning of life. Today's guest has written a broad and penetrating analysis of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes' view of life's meaning compared with other ancient worldviews, including those of Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Greek cultures. His research and insights have a great deal to offer to us 21st century readers. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome Arthur Jan Kiefer to the program today to talk about his exceptional book, Ecclesiastes and the Meaning of Life in the Ancient World. Arthur Kiefer teaches theology, philosophy, and religion at Eton College in England. Arthur Jan Kiefer, welcome to the podcast. Renee, thanks so much for having me on. It's a delight to be here. I always like to start out by asking my guests something about their early life. Uh, With you, I I guess I have two uh, areas of interest. The first is was there a religious or spiritual background to your own childhood, your own family? There was, and um, my parents and family more broadly were Protestant Christians and, and still are. And so church was a reality of weekly life. And um, we had a community of Christian friends and uh, in the home, that was a, a big part of, of life. It looked different at different kind of ages and, and stages. But uh, yeah, faith, and particularly the Christian faith, was was a major part of growing up. And what would you say were major influences on your own intellectual development as you were growing up and growing through school? Well, I wasn't particularly an, all, an all-star student when I was younger. I wasn't kind of always getting, you know, top marks on the test. And I, I did my homework and got along fine and things like that. But I was always uh, a bit interested and distracted with other things. And so uh, music was a huge part of life growing up. And I think that was incredibly formative intellectually, actually, in terms of learning how to read music and 
play music and and so on um and i just had other kind of kind of crafty um habits and hobbies so building different things and and getting into stuff like that and so uh school was was always there and my intellectual life uh though was probably most formed uh outside of outside of that um and a strange thing was though kind of in classic academic subjects i like i loved math and things like that and i really struggled to write and so i i had to learn and work a lot at, at at writing but um now I'm writing books and never really doing math, which is which is kind of funny. But um, yeah, so uh, so I think it was kind of broader sets of hobbies and interests that were really intellectually formative. My parents were were all star students, and they were really um, uh, had always been uh, great at school and the things that they did in that in that regard. And so uh, they were very and always have been supportive of of education and my education. So uh, even if I kind of warmed to uh, um, academic life later on, uh, they were fully, uh, fully behind that. And so, uh, I really credit them with uh, a lot of my interests now. That's really very interesting that, uh, math and music, uh, brought you eventually to text, uh, which is, which is not, uh, immediately apparent, but, uh, also that, that story is like, uh, many children growing up who uh, eventually say school didn't get in the way of their intellectual development. That's most they could say about uh, grade school, elementary school, uh, and high school. Uh, but uh, your path brought you to some really important insights, which we'll try to share with the listeners now, and we'll turn to your book. Uh, start by explaining the lens through which you examine the meaning of life psychology's threefold concept if if you asked anyone on the street what they thought the meaning of life was i i think you'll get some different answers uh and i suspect that they will eventually kind of materialize and and gather into a few similar answers so they'd eventually kind of connect and you'd find some some patterns i i draw particularly on people who have studied not consulting people on the street, but doing empirical work and talking to people about what they think the meaning of life is. And um, in 2016, there was a really uh, wide-ranging article that took a lot of the studies from the social sciences on the meaning of life and really kind of cohered it all and, and summarized things and drew out some of the patterns that they found in those studies and they came up with a threefold understanding of the meaning of of life and uh the first category is coherence second is significance and and the third is purpose and um so these are these are the the categories that i use uh ac across the book and i can explain those and draw those those out of course but the um it, so it's really drawing from that the social sciences there's both kind of theory-based uh studies of the meaning of life and then really a lot of dealing with people on the ground and figuring out what they mean and what it might mean to not have meaning in life and which of the types of meaning is is more important and and that sort of thing so i i really do in a not totally artificial but but certainly in an external sense take those categories and then uh use them as the lens through which i read the book of ecclesiastes it's it's a very comprehensive uh, approach to it, and it enables the reader uh, 
both the reader of your book and, and the reader of the, that research to get a grip on uh, a concept that can be a little uh, ambiguous at times. Uh, so purpose and significance uh, are two almost, um, well, why don't you define them as, as the research defines it? Sure. Purpose is really anything that lends direction to life. And now when we're talking about these meaning, meaning of life categories, this is, this is really all revolves around an individual. So I guess you could extend it to communities, but it's really talking about an individual from their perspective, uh, what gives life meaning or how they understand meaning. Um, so some people would say technically that's meaning in life. Do you have meaning in your life as opposed to another huge question of the meaning of life so what 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 is or should be the kind of meaning of everyone's life uh and uh, as being a human so purpose is is really anything that lends direction to life uh it can be framed in terms of goals uh a mission uh and really to use its own word uh, uh, j- just a purpose and so um that's often you know given to people or we give it to ourselves and and that sort of thing. Significance is is really something inherent about life. Is life valuable? Is it worthwhile? And really the, the kind of kicker question here is, is life worth living? Then you might say, why is it worth living? And that would fill out what makes life significant. But it's coherence <clears throat> that interests Ecclesiastes. Um, so let's see why that is so important to him. Why is that what troubles him? Yeah, coherence. <clears throat> I think it's a little bit more, it's a little less intuitive, I think, these days than the other two. But um, coherence is referring to patterns that reliably link up in the world. It's it's more external than purpose, more external than significance in term in, in the sense that it depends a bit more on just you and, and what you think and, and what you do. Uh, so coherence would be the kind of reliability of how things work out in life. So um, you might think about it in terms of input and output. If I do one thing, does um, the kind of right thing uh, result? And related to that, it also uh, is tied to sense making. So does my life make sense? Uh, do the things that I do uh, really add up in the, in the scheme of things? So uh, someone might think about this commonly in terms of career progression, right? So uh, if I work this many hours a week and um, treat my colleagues in this way and I have these credentials, then uh, surely there's some expected sense of outcome. Uh, for that in terms of where someone's career might go and so on. And then when it doesn't, when those things don't um, don't give the outputs that people think they will or expect them to or, or kind of look around the rest of the world and, and, and see happening, uh, then that's when life becomes incoherent and it doesn't make sense and it becomes meaningless. And it's those sorts of connections that Ecclesiastes is, is primarily concerned about. Um, so things like uh, if, if, if a father amasses wealth and works really hard uh, and he does so through wisdom and prudence uh, and then his son uh, inherits that wealth, but his son is not wise 
and and basically squanders all the wealth. Uh, that's an example of of things not really going as they should, and certainly not going as planned. And the author of Ecclesiastes seems a little bit, uh, well, certainly troubled, a bit confused, um, and kind of throws his hands up about these sorts of things that he observes in in life. He at times goes well beyond confused to seeming bitter and cynical uh, as he looks around the world and and everything in it. Uh, He he repeats a phrase, a very famous, well-known phrase in Hebrew, it's Hevel Havalim, which is often translated as vanity of vanities in English. Uh, but what what do you think Ecclesiastes actually means when he uses that that Hebrew word hevel? The book uses several key terms, and that that one is the is is probably the most prominent and certainly the most well known. Um, the word itself hevel refers to breath. It can refer to a kind of vapor. And in a, in a very concrete sense, so you get other passages where someone's breath or, or vapor was uh, somewhere passed through or whatever it is. Um, it's used to refer to the kind of uh, worthlessness of things or their, their uh, being vain in the kind of futile sense. And so that's where we get the vanity translation. So uh, the idols of, of other nations are um, hevels, really, um, as the prophets refer to it. I, I prefer not to translate the word, and, and I think it's it kind of has a, because it has a bit of a range of meaning, it's not entirely <clears throat> clear uh, what it's meant to refer to or, or how it might be best for us translated. Um, and and so I, I kind of leave it be, and I like its kind of richness and and some of its its ambiguity. Um, but I think we can, we can, in most cases, it refers to some sense of being kind of futile in the sense of something doesn't add up and, and even just incoherent. So it's it's pretty clear that it, from the meaning of life perspective, it can refer to things that simply are incoherent. But it's used in other places in the book to mean some slightly uh, different things. So it, it's hard to pin down one meaning of the word throughout the whole book that's consistent throughout the whole book and that really troubles some some people and they want to find something that fits or they want to find two options that fit but i don't think that's a problem at all really and uh we kind of just let it be and take it case by case and and you follow the thread in in the book that the uh the issue that is most deeply disturbing uh, to ecclesiastes is the unpredictability, the unreliability, and therefore the meaninglessness uh, of life as Hevel, that actions don't always have the same consequences. Some some children are raised with a a great deal of attention and kindness, and they turn out to be serial killers, and other children are neglected, and they turn out to be uh, pillars of the community. And and this, you uh, argue, is what causes pain, despair, and anger to the, the writer of Kohelet. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you get, I mean, those are excellent examples, and you get things kind of like that in here. And so, um, and it centers, it centers on expectations, 
Uh, and so what we expect from those, you know, as, as you say, certain, certain children and also from, uh, well, there's another word used uh, for toil in, in the book. And so this kind of work or kind of uh, exertion. And part of what Kohelet is doing is, is examining, kind of sets up an investigation and examination of, of everything, as he says, under the sun. And this is probably just referring to the kind of human realm. He's not, he's not looking up into heaven or uh, ethereal things. He's kind of just observing his world. And part of what he sees are these different instances and, uh, and occurrences. And, uh, you know, maybe not totally comprehensive, but, but uh, the book is set up in a way to kind of say, I'm, I'm looking at everything that humans do, all that they do, all their toil that they do um, under, under the sun. So there's a bit of a universalization going on. And um, maybe it's no surprise that uh, Ecclesiastes is, is it's a favorite book among many people. And it's certainly a relatable book in terms of uh, you get all kinds of people from all different backgrounds that I've spoken with. And um, they really can take something away or relate to uh, Ecclesiastes. Yes, he's, he's talking about the universal. Uh, and uh, that made it extremely interesting that you put him uh, in the context of other ancient uh, writers and thinkers in, in the uh, in the Middle East, well, in the Mediterranean area, that uh, that dealt with the same issues, because of course they're the same issues, because it's the human condition. Um, the cultures you look at are uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Greece. So, can you just tell us a little bit? about how Ecclesiastes compares. Let's start with his Egyptian counterpart. Sure. The, um, the texts I select for these, uh, for these different cultures are, uh, you know, they're a bit wide-ranging. They're certainly wide-ranging in time. Uh, and a bit wide-ranging in geography, though, you know, these are some, some texts, many of these texts are texts commonly used in biblical studies, particularly of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And um, so they're, they're drawn upon from uh, time to time for uh, more or less, I think, for different books or different areas of, of study. So the Egyptian texts I, I look at um, are in part, they're, they're kind of instructional literature. So they're, they're versions of Proverbs. And I also look at some uh, laments and then a kind of, it's a bit hard to categorize. It's a dispute between a man and his bar, or his kind of soul sort of thing. And so it's this, this really uh, long poem uh, exploring society and, um, and this, this man's response to it. So again, it's an eclectic bunch of, of texts, but the reason I, I look closely at these is because they make some link between uh, suffering and the meaning of life. And that's the pattern I found in Ecclesiastes. So while the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole deals with each of these categories of meaning of life in, in a distinct way, and particularly coherence seems a big one, uh, it is, as we said before, consistently linked up with uh, suffering in some sense, particularly of the author who is um, says he hates life. Uh, he was grieved in his heart. He saw this, this evil. Uh, and was sorrowful and, and, and things like that. And so um, I look for any of those patterns across uh, Egypt. And what I found was um, 
and these kind of big poetic lament texts, uh, you also get people basically examining uh, society, their society in, in, in some degree, and they see a bit of a mismatch between um, basically what, the, what they think should be happening in terms of patterns in the world, and they see uh, social patterns upset. Uh, they see injustice and 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 things like that, and um, that does that does bother them, bother them as well. In um, the instructional texts, so uh, proverbial type of of literature, you get uh, you really get a big pattern of coherence. So in the same way that we might read proverbs and say, oh, well, proverbs things add up, things are coherent uh, when um, someone um, saves when someone tries to to save their money, they um, they hold on to their wealth. When someone uh, works hard, they gain wealth, uh, and so on. Those sorts of those sorts of patterns, as opposing to lose it or or um, yeah, losing it to someone or something. So uh, that similar kind of coherent pattern uh, occurs in in the instructional texts of of Egypt, and then you get a few exceptions, uh, a few exceptions in there, but. Um, it's helpful to have that norm, and then you can see the uh, other texts and how they they take exception to that. Um, maybe the the last thing I'll say about that is is, is then you also get uh, purpose. It comes through mainly um, through the presence of death and, and and the reality of 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 death. And so uh, the Egyptians had a pretty distinct uh, view of of this. They um, were thought really to have a fairly positive view of of life if i can put it that way um but life really kind of uh continued on into um the next realm and uh that's that's really evident in things like the, the pyramids and 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 the um artifacts that have been left behind um from ancient egyptian culture and so they had a pretty um clear view of the judgment of the dead, how they were judged and what you needed to do in that uh, moment. And then also the types of ways that, uh, well, kings particularly and, and other uh, kind of prominent people could uh, affect their existence in the afterlife. Um, and so it it's hard. I don't want to kind of go speaking for an everyday Egyptian in the ancient world. That's pretty difficult to, to do. We really get the, the texts that we have are really sampling the kind of cream of the milk. So it's right off the top. Um, and, and, and it's quite hard to know about what, what uh, broad uh, sets of society would have thought about things or how they would have been living or conceived of these ideas. But we do have a, uh, a pretty select sample of, of, of people and times and ideas. One thing that struck me, and I, I believe you pointed out uh, in your text, is the uh, the difference between the Egyptian and uh, Ecclesiastes' view of uh, the point of pain and suffering. Uh, that uh, the Egyptian, his Egyptian counterpart, if we can say it that way, um, seemed to think that anxiety and grief uh, can produce good results if someone is guided or guides himself uh, or herself through it uh, effectively, uh, kind of like what people talk about today as uh, uh, post-traumatic growth. That's how I imagine the, the meaning was. But, uh, but Ecclesiastes sees nothing good about pain. He seems to say, take it out of your heart and soul and 
replace it with joy, which is a whole other topic of how you do that, um, that happiness comes not through grief and suffering, but independent, despite uh, life suffering. Uh, is that a correct interpretation of the difference between them? Of a difference, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that, that's exactly right. I, I was really uh, interested to to find that and discover that actually. And and it's true. Ecclesiastes isn't, it just, it doesn't want to make space for those, those, um, those painful moments and painful experiences. And, and by that, I mean, in terms of what it's advocating for and saying how you should deal with that is not so much to embrace those. It's going to say, this is a reality of life. This is the way life is. Uh, but, uh, you know, don't don't embrace that as to the, to whatever extent you can uh, find the joy, find the things that are are happy in life, and um, particularly embrace whatever it is that your it calls it a lot, but your kind of portion in life. So what God has given you to do and be, and the and the people He's given you to be around that that kind of thing. But yeah, the the Egyptian view had a bit. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a bit more, maybe, uh, redeemable, constructive view of some of that 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 suffering and pain, and that it might produce something good in the person. And I think that, as you say, I think that there's there's certainly space for that, and certainly space for that in the Bible. I mean, Proverbs would be a bit more about uh, tough love and saying, you know, you you might uh, go through some some hardship, and not least the teaching of the book, and and really have to work through that and come out better on the other side. Um, but Ecclesiastes, for the kind of uh, slightly narrow um, scope that it gives us on on, on things, um, in terms of a, a point of view, it's going to say that uh, this is the way things are, uh, but let me advise you otherwise. Right. Well, that's why some of the traditional commentaries uh, opine that Proverbs was a product of a midlife writer, uh, who still believes that nose to the grindstone, play by the rules, do everything right, and you'll win the prize, and uh, that Ecclesiastes is written by an older person who says, well, sometimes that works, but sometimes it did, doesn't. Uh, but of course, there are many points of view of who wrote the texts and when and how old they were. Um, uh we don't have time to go through a comparison with each one, um, although it's certainly well worth reading, listeners. I hope you will re read the book and look at how these uh, philosophers uh, viewed meaning of life. Um, but Kohelet is very different from Greek philosophers, uh, but shouldn't they be able to be in harmony with one another? Take the Epicureans, for example. Um, they prize tranquility and living in tune with nature, avoiding pain and fear, and especially the fear of death. Uh, why wouldn't that be meaningful in the, uh, in the paradigm, the cognitive view of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, the Epicureans, as you say, um, thought thought pain didn't really arise from uh, nature or uh, so incoherent things in life. Uh, but the primary cause of pain was uh, unnatural human fear, 
And so what they saw is just uh, something you shouldn't have, these, these human fears. Um, and so uh, they think you can kind of resolve that by um, kind of taking control of these, these fears and uh, adjusting your view on the world. It's kind of an internal thing. The world's going to be what it is, and you're, you're, you're uh, in control of what's um, inside of you. Um, and so uh, one of the big differences I see between Ecclesiastes and the Epicureans is that um, they, they think through kind of study and knowledge of maybe yourself and even the world, you're going to uh, produce happiness because your fears are, are largely um, irrational, for lack of a better, a better thing. Um, and that, that's as opposed to the kind of living in ignorance and then fear and then, and then resulting in pain. But um, for Kohelet, the investigation into life, into all these things and the incoherence that he sees is really that it produces more, un, uh, or it produces less happiness, it produces more pain. Uh, and so there's this really clear correlation between the kind of study and uh, investigation of, of life uh, and the kind of frustration that it, that it begets. Um, that's so yeah. remarkable that and the first time one encounters that, uh, here is an investigator who's gathered the wisdom of the world as he knows it in his time and is trying to dig deep into the meaning of life. And one of his apparent conclusions is what I'm doing and what you, the reader, are doing with me is a cause of suffering. Yeah, it is. It, it is pretty remarkable. It, it is remarkable, really. And I think it, it's, it's, it's long debated what the, as you'll know, long debated what this final passage in the book uh, kind of means and if it relates to the rest of what's come before it and, and how it relates. And so I'm referring to this, um, this, this, this part of, of the end of chapter 12, really, um, where um, the author says, you know, fear God, keep his commandments. Uh, this is the whole kind of, this is the whole of, of, of humankind, the whole duty. Uh, of them really um god's going to judge every deed um and there is a level i think with that kind of relatively straightforward uh advice um if you link that with some of the other things that i mentioned about taking your lot or embracing the portion that god's given you so whatever he's kind of put before you to do um I, I think that's a, a big part of, of Kohelet's solution. Uh, if he does have a solution, it's basically to say, listen, I've investigated this. It results in pain. You're probably going to feel that too as you as you read this book, if you thought about these things too. And, and I'm sure we can point to many philosophers throughout time who have uh, thought hard about life and, and ended up on the despairing end of things. And uh, so he kind of says – don't think about it so much just kind of do what's what's before you and especially don't start trying to do too much predicting about the future and so on and so um what's there before you to do what can you uh worry about today um and um it recalls new testament passages actually about that today has enough worry for itself and uh so focus on that yes be present in what's right in front of you uh, Kohelet's um, uh, emphasis on essentially the cognitive aspect of meaning in life, which is coherence, um, it, it, would he have anything to say uh, to his colleague in the text, Job, 
to ease his suffering. Uh, Job's losses were personal. His suffering was physical and emotional. Uh, it, okay, it had it had a cognitive component. Why did the good suffer? He didn't deserve it. What what does Kohelet's philosophy have to say to Job? Yeah, Job is Job is kind of testing and maybe discovering the limits of his knowledge about how the world works, how relationships work, how uh, being wise and righteous works. And so you can see a lot of incoherence in, in, in the book. Uh, here's a man who um, we might say uh, deserves or um, uh, is, is rightly entitled to uh, a, a decent life, given, given what we're told about him at the beginning. And then he gets uh, the complete opposite of that and gets so many things taken away and endures um, hardship. And uh, so much of the middle of that book and in, in, in its kind of uh, dialogue bits is really teasing out what he thinks about being innocent and what his friends uh, think about him undergoing pain and, and suffering and the kind of loss that he's had. And, uh, uh, you know, he comes out on the other side restored. Uh, but uh, before he does that, he has this sort of great confrontation with, with God who, who basically says, my ways are, are my ways. And, um, is actually a uh, uh, one verse that says, um, "These are the outskirts of his ways. What a whisper do we hear of him, and the thunder of his power? Who can understand that?" This is referring to to God, and uh, I think that really captures a lot of what Job uh, is meant to learn, and what readers can take away away from that book. So, it. <laughs> In a way, Ecclesiastes kind of picks up from there and and says, "I'm going to show kind of this widespread uh, incoherent. It doesn't always uh, go well for the righteous, and it doesn't always go badly for the wicked." Uh, and so, and then kind of takes us to the next step, maybe. So, so I guess that's how that's how I'd see the two books relating. Uh, well, uh, Ecclesiastes recommends joy as a response to suffering, and what he says is. Uh, it contradicts conventional wisdom in psychology today, uh, which is he sees joy as a, a God-given ability to enjoy something. It's not a decision to be positive and say everything is beautiful or, uh, you know, even if it seems bad, it's really good. Uh, he uh, seems to think that, that the ability to enjoy anything uh, is a gift from God, uh, which the more we learn about endorphins, actually, we may uh, uh, agree increasingly with uh, with Kohelet. Um, it, how does that work in a philosophical religious context, though? It's, it's a good question. It's a difficult one, actually. And uh, you're exactly right that he's going to say, basically, God gives... God gives people joy, uh, and he's even going to say some God doesn't give other people joy. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty coarse. It's a bit difficult to to deal with, I think, and um, and even has a bit of a one of the case studies in the book uh, really talks about this very thing, right? Um, uh, right, he's seen that someone uh, had um, this life basically that that God enabled them to enjoy and all this all this stuff and 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 um, abundance and things like that and then there was another person who didn't who uh, who didn't have it but 
Oh, how, how your question was how it relates to um, kind of contemporary religious notions of joy. I think, yeah, there is a there is a sense I think today um, that that joy is really in your control. And it's really just what you make of your situation. Uh, now, I'd I think I wouldn't want to say too much about this until I put Ecclesiastes in its broader context in the Bible. And so um, I, I referred earlier to Ecclesiastes on the one hand, having a universal kind of scope. So the investigation is wide ranging, but Ecclesiastes does nonetheless give us a slightly narrow view on some of the things that it talks about. And by that, I mean, uh, really it's, you know, it's, it's, it's view of God, for instance, is um, it's certainly not the whole picture of God that we get throughout the Bible and even in, in other individual books of, of of the Bible, and so um, it would depend. It would depend a bit on uh, what religion people are a part of, of course, and things like that. But I think, you know, before I said anything about a particular religion and how the uh, joy works there, that Ecclesiastes is, you know, it is it is one part. If it was the only book we had, for instance, um, uh, to go on 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 any of these topics, then uh, I th- I think that would that's uh, would obviously be a bit uh, dramatic um and uh it's it, but it's not the only view and so we get uh these different themes joy included teased out throughout uh other parts of the bible uh, finally arthur um please expand on your conclusion the book's conclusion uh that the book of ecclesiastes unlike for example some of the psalms uh, doesn't say that the human condition will change, but rather, as you write, he invites the readers to adjust. What what is what does that entail? Mm. It's so. If the book is portraying this, well, it's portraying a human condition. It's really portraying a world condition. This is the way that the world is. This is the way that he's seen the world work, and I think as attested throughout time and interpreters and, and, and just everyday readers of the book that this makes a lot of contact with how our world works and um, has worked in, in many ways and times. Um, so there, there's a sense of inviting the reader in to say, this is how the world works. Uh, here are some kind of suggestions. Here are some, a few certainties, despite Kohelet being so uncertain about many things, about the timing of death, uh, even about perhaps what happens after death and so on, uh, that there are some things that he's quite uh, certain about. And so uh, there is an invitation to kind of grab on to, to those things, but it's really uh, giving people a, a perspective on, on the world and uh, maybe on, of the world in its kind of harsher realities. So uh, I wouldn't want to say this is how all of life and all of experiences all the time. And I don't know that the author wants to do that uh, either. Um, But what I think he is doing at least is saying some of the time life is really like this. And so um, how are you going to, uh, to deal with that? Um, given these uh, few suggestions and a lot of observations. So um, one of the ways that it, it, it seems like the book might be kind of cluing us into the fact that these are, while these might be universal and widespread things, they aren't um, necessarily the things that happen all the time uh, or perhaps 
maybe in a way the norm we would we would say that so so if i was said is it normal that someone who works with wisdom then leaves it over to a foolish child that kind of thing um he uses this phrase uh there is there is a person or there was a man uh, or i saw this this um person in this instance and uh some interpreters think that is is basically flagging up this is a this is a kind of exception to the rule i saw a person uh and this is what happened to to them so you know there's a few things to kind of juggle juggle and balance here but i i think that's what that that's what i meant by that conclusion uh-huh so do you think as many people do that it, uh Kohelet is a depressing book i i like to think of of Kohelet as a realistic book uh I mean, it's certainly a it's certainly a downer. I, I, I think I think it is. Uh, there, there, yeah, there are there are, there are difficult things to read in there, and I think if you kind of breeze through it, it, it it's not necessarily going to be the most most uplifting thing. I think when you start to tease those kind of implications out, um, thought through implications, for example, about you know relieve yourself of the anxiety, given what he said relieve yourself of the anxieties about trying to predict every outcome and control life all the time uh, and let some things go and focus just on what's before you on your current circumstance. Um, now, again, this is where the balance comes in. Proverbs is going to say, you ought to make some plans, really, and don't just leave everything up to the, the, the last minute, that sort of thing. And so we get broadly a balanced view throughout a few of these books. Um, but in a way, it can be kind of it can be a, a little bit relieving, and I and I suspect I, I think maybe of people who have had severe instances of of incoherence in their life, and so this idea of a kind of um, I don't know an unexpected, undeserving inheritor, or um, working in one way and another outcome um, happening, and 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 so on, um, that sort of thing. That that this might provide. Not so much a, a a depressing kind of a depressing thought and and influence on them, but but in some ways a kind of bit of a reality check and maybe even a bit of reassurance. I mean, often you'll you'll be familiar with this that that talking with people who are going through something difficult uh, or a problem that they're really struggling with. I mean, ninety percent of the time, people just want to know and to hear that someone else has the same pro- someone else has the same problem that they're not alone and that the only person facing this struggle and and out of that uh a lot of kind of healing and 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 direction can come i i agree i think one of the um great contributions of this book is to the reader who recognizes her own darkest thoughts and says, well, here it is as, as part of the Bible. This is, it's okay that I've thought this way. Uh, I think that in itself is very reassuring and, uh, and supportive. Um, thank you so much for opening this book of wisdom literature for us. Um, before I let you go, uh, can you share with us what you're working on now? What I'm working on now is um, really uh, broadly kind of Old Testament and, and Hebrew ethics. So ethics has always been an interest of mine, a kind of um, side interest or, or a companion interest to the Bible. And so um, I'm kind of working on small projects as they come across in terms of ethical questions and issues throughout the Bible, but um, uh, also kind of 
working on something a little more comprehensive and, and wide-ranging. That's um, starting in Genesis, really. So I've got, I've, I'm, I'm in Leviticus right now and, and, and really, um, really enjoying. Goodness, Leviticus rewards a close reading. It, it has been, has been fascinating. But um, yeah, ethics and um, across the Old Testament. Well, we really do need some work in ethics in this world of ours, don't we? So I, I wish you a lot of strength going forward, and I look forward to uh, reading what comes out of that work. Congratulations on this major treatment of uh, Ecclesiastes and, and his friends. Uh, <laughs> uh, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Renee, thanks so much. This has been a real delight to be on the on the podcast. I really appreciate the invitation. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. <laughs>